So um, this evening we're going to um, look at uh, continue looking at our series in Malachi. We're looking particularly at Malachi two seventeen to three five. Um, today we're honoured to have our guest speaker um, Stuart Phillips. Um, he has been with Oakwall Church a, a few times. He's a uh, associate minister in a in St John's Church in I think it's D- oh, Dunfield uh, in Manchester. Um, so he's uh, sadly been in lockdown way longer than most of us have. Um, <laughs> He's also uh, unashamedly Welsh, um, so that's uh, a brilliant thing. And um, yeah, so he's going to he's going to talk to us uh, later on uh, in a moment. Um, we're also going to listen to a, uh, a short song by um, uh, by Wesley, um, which will then take us nicely into communion. Um, before we do, um, Kate is going to read the passage for us um, from uh, Malachi. So Kate. So the readings from Malachi, chapter 2, verses 17, through to chapter 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in as in former years. So I will come to you to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless. And deprive the foreigners among you of justice that do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Thank you, Kate. Um, we're going to hand over to Stuart. Uh, before we do, though, I will um, I'll pray for him. So um, thank you, Lord, for Stuart, for the preparation he's done, Lord. Lord, we, uh, we pray that you'll be with him as he speaks to us, Lord, that you will guide his words. Uh, your Holy Spirit will be uh, powerfully present, Lord, in what he says. Um, Lord, in that um, whatever we hear tonight, Lord, uh, will affect us profoundly, Lord, and we we won't um, go away from this evening, Lord, being the same people we were as we came, Lord. Lord, do we just want to get close to you. We want to know you more, Lord, and we just pray that Stuart um, will help us do that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you. Great. Thank you everyone, for uh, your welcome. It's uh, good to be with you again, even though it's virtually this year rather than uh, in person. Um, yeah, as uh, Andy mentioned, here in Greater Manchester, we've been in severe restrictions since the end of July. So uh, we're really excited that everyone has come to join us in those uh, restrictions. No, we're not really. It, it, it's not very nice, really, is it? And um, I know these are really challenging days for so many of us uh, at this time. Um, I also am... Uh, 
regarded as vulnerable because I suffer from uh, asthma and COPD. So I spent the first three months in total isolation, um, didn't go outside other than the garden. So, um, yeah, it, these are challenging days, aren't they? And yet in these days, we are still seeing God work in us and through us in all sorts of ways. So it's uh, it's a privilege to be able to uh, to join with you this evening. Uh, to be able to sit in my study and still communicate with you. It's good to be here. So we're looking at this um, passage in Malachi and uh, the title I've been given is A People Who Doubt. A People Who Doubt. Here's a question. Is doubt always a bad thing or are there circumstances in which doubt is a good thing? Interesting question. I think in our culture, Doubt is often seen as a good thing. It fits the narrative of our so-called liberal, secular, enlightened society. In a society where there is no such thing as objective truth, where we are told there are many different ways of looking at life, many different belief systems, both religious and non-religious, in that kind of culture, then to live with a healthy dose of doubt is seen as a good thing because it guards us from being exclusive. It guards us from being committed. It makes sure that we're always open to receiving new ideas and never thinking that we have got it right and that we know the truth. The problem with that view and the problem with our culture today is not that we believe in nothing. The problem is we believe in anything. And, and that is a culture in which doubt becomes a good thing because it means we can take on all sorts of ideas and philosophies and religions and just live with them. I think one of the things that the coronavirus is doing is it is challenging the beliefs of everyone. As we see the things that we trusted in being taken away from us, as we see the things that we've invested so much time and energy in being taken away from us, I think many people are feeling a sense of doubt about the way that they are living their lives. Doubts are being exposed in all sorts of ways. All of us, whatever we believe, whatever our lifestyle, whatever we think about the future and how we respond to this scenario is going to be critical for our future. But this is nothing new. In this book of Malachi, we see a people who were living in a broken world of their own. It was 2,400 years ago, but it was a world in which their hopes were shattered. Their dreams had been taken away. Their sense of normality had been disturbed. And as all of these things happen to them, as they are happening to us in this current circumstance, so doubts crept in. And in the book of Malachi, people are expressing these doubts through questioning God. There are a series of six main questions, plus some, some subsidiary questions that the people use to express their doubts, to question God in this scenario where their world has fallen apart. And we're going to look at another one of these questions that the people ask of God in chapter three or the first part of chapter three 
this evening and the end of chapter two. Verse 17 tells us you have wearied the Lord with your words. The question, how have we wearied you? The response by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Where is the God of justice? That's the question they were asking. That's the question that their doubts were raising. Where is the God of justice? I think when we come to doubt, there are two ways in which doubts express themselves in our lives. The first is what we might call intellectual doubt. A doubt about a particular belief about God. Uh, way back in 1984, when a guy called David Jenkins was appointed as the Bishop of Durham, he caused great controversy because even though he was a bishop in the second most important see in the Church of England, he publicly expressed his doubts about the basic beliefs of the virgin birth and the resurrection. He claimed that that was a good thing because it, he was being honest and he would give people the freedom to express their own doubts. He had intellectual doubts about the basics of the Christian belief. That's one form of doubt that can be very challenging for us when we struggle with a particular doctrine. But there's another sort of doubt, and I call this circumstantial doubt. That is, we may hold a belief, particularly about God, but when difficult circumstances come into our lives that challenge that belief, Doubts are created and they can often lead to what we call a loss of faith. Let me give you an example. Um, there used to be a, an old traditional DIY shop uh, just about 10 minutes walk up the road from where we live. And I often used to go there to, to pick up all sorts of, of bits and pieces. And uh, when the guy who owned the shop and who served behind the counter found out who I was and what I did, he always started engaging me in conversations about religion and about God. And um, we had a lot of very, very interesting discussions about God and about the Christian faith. But no matter how many good arguments I could put to him for belief in God, there was always one stumbling block. And that stumbling block was not an intellectual argument. It was a circumstantial argument. A few years earlier, his sister had suffered from cancer and had died a long and painful death. And that circumstance completely took over what he believed. I could bring all sorts of intellectual arguments, but in the end, we always reached the point where he said, yeah, he said, but I could never believe in a God who put my sister through that. I could never believe in a God like that. That's circumstantial doubt where a difficult life circumstance takes over our lives in such a way that we cannot see beyond it. Now, actually, I think that intellectual doubt and circumstantial doubt in the end are inseparable because what we believe influences the way we live. Our belief about God affects the way we respond to circumstances that we find ourselves in. And that's what's going on here. The people were saying, where is the God of justice? 
You see, they were looking around at their circumstances and they were seeing evil people doing evil things and yet prospering. They were seeing good people do good things and yet seemingly suffering. And so the circumstances cause them to challenge that belief in a God of justice. And the question is, where is the God of justice? And that was at one sense a belief, but it was a belief that was being influenced by circumstances. So what framework does Malachi give them and give us this evening for tackling both intellectual and circumstantial doubt? Let me give you three quick things. First is this. We need to trust in God's unchanging character. We need to trust in God's unchanging character. So the specific aspect of God's character that's being challenged here is justice. That unjust people doing unjust things were getting away with it. But the way these people were responding to that is the way that if we're honest, we respond to as well. They looked at other people's life of injustice, but they didn't look within themselves at their lives. They saw injustice in others, but they couldn't see injustice in themselves. When someone does something wrong against us, we want justice done, don't we? (laughs) When we do something wrong to someone else, we want grace that will forgive us. We don't want justice towards us. And that's a reflection of the world in which we live. The cry in our world is is ever increasing. We want justice. You see it on social media campaigns. Somebody gets a bee in their bonnet. And so it's post after post, tweet after tweet. We want justice for this situation. And then we have long running campaigns where someone perhaps has been convicted of something that they didn't do. A tragedy where someone wants someone to be held responsible. There is a cry for justice and the cry is, where is justice in our world today? But I want you to notice what the cry of the people in Malachi's day was. Their cry wasn't, where is justice? Their cry in the words of verse 17 were, where is the God of justice? Do you see what they're doubting is God's character? You know, people today, if they say, where is justice? You could say to them, well, if you don't believe in God, how how do you how do you decide what is justice? It becomes a very nebulous thing. But these people claim to believe in God. And so their cry is not where is justice? Their cry is where is the God? Of justice. And Malachi's response in chapter 3, verse 5, is he calls people to respond to God's character. Malachi uses two statements there in verse 5 about God's justice. He says, I will come near to you for judgment, and I will be quick to testify against these unjust people doing unjust things. I will come near to you and I will be quick to judge. That is saying God is always near to us and God's character is that he is a God of justice. 
Now, the people responded to that. You say you're near to us, but we feel you're far away from us. You say you were quick to bring justice. So why are we waiting? Those words are a statement of God's character, that God is just and God will work in his right time. Here's the problem for these people, and it was actually a problem for the religious leaders in Jesus's day as well. Underlying their belief was a, a self-satisfied smugness that God's justice posed no threat to them because they were OK. They were part of the chosen people. They were the religious ones. They were the goodies. God's justice would only be meted out to the baddies. So we're safe. We're OK. And of course, the big flaw in that belief that these people in Malachi's day expressed and the people in Jesus's day often expressed was they were measuring themselves against others. They were taking their privileges, their achievements, their morality, and they were trusting in them to save them from judgment. They weren't trusting in God's character. They were trusting in themselves and their mistaken view of his character. These people needed to be reminded that God's unchanging character is a character of justice. When Jesus died on the cross, he saved us from our sins and he did so on the basis of justice. 1 John 1 verse 9, you might know this verse says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you notice it says if we confess our sins, he will forgive us and purify us. Why? Because God is just. And in Jesus, God demonstrated his justice on the cross that we might receive his just justice, not because of what we've done, not because of our achievements, but because of what Jesus did for us. You see, in doubting God's justice, they were actually doubting God's salvation. Without justice, there is no salvation. I wonder this evening, what are we tr actually trusting in for our salvation? Are we trusting in the character of God, in, the, in God's justice that was seen in Jesus's death on the cross? Or are we still trusting secretly in our own morality and our own achievements? If we trust in those, we will always feel doubtful about what God has done for us. It is only when we trust in the character of God that our doubts can be dealt with because then we trust in him, not in ourselves. And God's character doesn't change. So we trust in God's unchanging character. Secondly, we deal with doubt by becoming part of God's enduring covenant, by becoming part of God's enduring covenant. One of the big themes in the Old Testament is, is covenant. And uh, you've probably come across this already in your study of the book of Malachi. A covenant is an agreement between two parties that has a strong legal basis and cannot be broken without serious consequences. Last week, you might have looked at how Malachi saw that in terms of marriage. The reason why it says that God hates divorce is because he loves marriage. He loves the covenant of faithfulness. By the way, the reason why Christians who take the Bible seriously take marriage seriously 
is that marriage is not just a, a, a God ordained way for men and women to relate together. It's also because marriage, the covenant of marriage is one of the big visual aid images that the Bible uses to describe God's plan of salvation. The image of a husband and wife is described in the New Testament as like that between Christ, the bridegroom and the church's bride. God's ultimate bringing of us together at his coming again is described in terms of being a wedding banquet to which we are invited. At the end of time, when God brings heaven and earth together by creating a new heaven and a new earth, it's heaven and earth joined together. The same phrase as a man and woman are joined together in holy matrimony. This picture of covenant, of an enduring covenant that God has made with his people is critical to understanding his salvation. That's why Christians who take the Bible seriously take marriage seriously, because marriage is an enduring covenant. But it's not the enduring covenant of salvation. Malachi describes this enduring covenant by using the image of messengers. Chapter three, verse one, he describes two messengers who are going to come. The first is a messenger who will prepare the way. Now, that, of course, is referring to John the Baptist. The gospel writers, when they speak of John the Baptist, use this verse in Malachi. So the, the covenant will be brought to fruition by John the Baptist preparing the way. But then the second messenger in verse chapter three, verse one is described as the messenger of the covenant. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the one who as God's ultimate messenger breaks the repairs, the broken covenant between man and God. How does he do that? Take the images of marriage. Marriage is about lots of things, but here are three key ones. They're about oneness, two people becoming one flesh. They're about intimacy, a man and a woman living together in intimate relationship. And they're about security, providing security, a secure relationship for each other and usually for children. Take those three images, oneness, intimacy, security. This is what God's covenant does in Jesus. It builds the bridge that crosses the gap between God and man so that we can know oneness with God. He tears down the curtain that separates man from God so that we can experience intimacy with God. And he provides the security that we need when we stand before God on the day of his coming and we can endure his judgment, not because of what we did, but because of what he did on the cross. And just as real marriage provides, humanly speaking, for oneness, intimacy and security. Malachi is pointing us to a bigger picture of a bigger covenant that provides oneness, intimacy and security. For everyone, married or single, male or female, they can receive this gift of God's covenant, which is an enduring covenant, not just for this time, but for all eternity. And then just quickly at the end, the third thing, we need to receive God's fearless care. We need to receive God's fearless care. I think when it comes to dealing with doubt, this is perhaps our biggest one. Does God really care for us? Do you remember that incident when the disciples were in the boat 
out on the lake of Galilee and a storm blew up and Jesus was sleeping in the stern of the boat. And in their fear, the disciples cry out. And this is what they say. Listen to these words. They say, Master, don't you care that we are drowning? (laughs) Do you notice what they're saying there? They're not just saying the circumstances are bad. These are causing us to doubt. They are saying, Jesus, Master, don't you care? Don't you care? They're questioning, doubting Jesus's character. Don't you care? And maybe that's how we feel at the moment, some of us. In our fearful circumstances, the thing that causes us so much fear is not just what's happening to us out there in the world, but the fearful doubt that this is evidence that God doesn't care for us and he will let us drown in our raging sea, whatever form that takes. What's the underlying issue here? As it was for Israel in the time of Malachi, the underlying issue here is a doubting of God's character and God's ability to work in the circumstances of life. A doubting that God cares for us. A doubting that is often created by hard circumstances in life. If we think that God's care is demonstrated because he's going to bail us out when the going gets tough, when we want it, how we want it, then it's natural. We're going to doubt him in these difficult days. But the thing is this, we only see the immediate circumstances. God sees the big picture. And Malachi gives us two powerful images here in chapter three, verse three. The first is he pictures God as a purifier. He talks about launderer's soap, (laughs) One of the pictures of sin throughout the Bible is that it makes us dirty and we need to be made clean. The Old Testament religious system was was an attempt to uh, make people clean on the outside. The Pharisees wanted to be clean on the outside by introducing all these rules and regulations. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. It's what's on the inside that makes us unclean, not what's on the outside. Jesus came to purify us, not make us clean on the outside. Good though that is clean on the inside, clean hearts, clean hearts. Jesus came to purify us so that we could know those clean hearts. And secondly, he comes as a refiner. Malachi speaks of the refiner's fire. He speaks of a fire that does not destroy, but instead purifies and refines. He speaks of us being refined like gold and silver, a process that needs considerable care and great skill. Let me give you this beautiful image as we finish. In the days of Malachi, the process of refining silver was more difficult than the process of refining gold. The silversmith would have to sit huddled over his small metal furnace trying to determine from the colour of the metal when it was pure or not. When silver ore is molten, it gives off oxygen. It was treated with charcoal to prevent it from reabsorbing the oxygen from the air as it cooled. Because if it did that, if it absorbed the the oxygen from the air, it would lose its luster and it would never become refined pure silver. The silversmith through care and skill, was able to tell when the process was complete and the impurities had burnt away. 
And this is how he could tell it. He could tell that the impurities had burned away and he had pure silver in his little little uh, molten furnace. When the silver became a liquid mirror in which he could see his own reflection. When he looked into the molten furnace and he saw the silver as a liquid mirror, he knew the process was done. It was complete. It was pure silver. That's God's purpose for us. God wants to look at us. God wants to refine us so that when he looks at us, he sees his reflection in us as pure, refined silver. There are times like these when we might doubt God's care for us. Not being able to see our children, our grandchildren, our parents. We've all been there, haven't we? Not being able to go out, not having freedom. And these create doubts. Does God really care for me if I'm going through this? Yes, he does, because God is just in the business of refining us. And as we take communion in these next few minutes, we're going to be reminded of these truths, aren't we? We're going to be reminded that communion points us to a God of justice, a God who in Jesus paid the price for our sins so justice could be done and we could be saved. Communion points us to a God of a covenant, a God who will never abandon us, a God who draws us into deep intimacy with him. And we're going to see God as a God of fearless care whose love and purpose is always to transform us into his image, that when the time comes, we might see his face in glory.